Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, everybody. I pray that you're all doing great. Uh, a little late on this because we are kind of past uh, celebrating, uh, you know, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, uh, Ascension Sun- or, uh, Resurrection Sunday, and Ascension, and the and Pentecost. But this past year, I really felt like the Lord revealed just the radical nature of the Ascension more than you know the last. To the two prior years as becoming Catholic, where the Ascension just seemed kind of like a, a floating idea <laughs> of, oh, Jesus just left them. And um, yeah, so I really wanted to talk about the full Paschal mystery in today and truly what it shows, the one-time events and how we participate in those one-time events in the liturgy and the sacraments that we get to uh, participate directly into it. We get to touch that and uh, the reality of the of us being lifted up into that from our human nature that Christ took on in, his, in the incarnation. So I want to go through each uh, point just fairly briefly. So uh, the Paschal mystery, for one, is talking about those uh, days of Jesus's passion, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, and Pentecost. Pentecost is the completion of the Paschal mystery, right? So it's at the end of Christ's life. It's the fulfillment of what his mission was to do, was to die on a cross, descend into uh, Hades, the abode of the dead, to raise the righteous back to life and to open heaven for all of us and to be to defeat death itself, the the very cause of sin, and to raise us to life through his resurrection and then the ascension into heaven, uh, our human nature being uh, in the Godhead now that has never been there before, and the descent of the Holy Spirit the, to give us the outpouring of God himself for our internal transformation to become new creations reborn again in Christ through the sacraments and through uh, just the ministry. So uh, that's the Paschal mystery, but I wanted to also just briefly talk about the incarnation and his life before the Paschal mystery uh, as well. So let's talk about the life of Christ. So the incarnation of Christ, he was born in Bethlehem, and we talked about this before, but in Hebrew, it means the house of bread. In Aramaic, it means the house of meat. He was born in a manger, and the manger was to feed animals, right? So all of this points to several things. Jesus came And he, in the house of bread or the house of meat, to give his flesh, which he called meat, to gnaw on on his flesh in John 6, when he's talking about the Eucharist, to feed the world with life-giving bread, right? And he is... uh, he is our Paschal Lamb. We get we consume Jesus Christ Himself in the Eucharist. He was born in a manger, and the manger was to feed, right? So He's going to feed the world, um, and the the wood of the manger represented the cross. So all of this was pointing uh, miraculously already His incarnation itself, and just the elements around it was already pointing to His death and the new covenant from the cross, right, and the Eucharist that are connected. And uh, when he was born, his his birth in Beth and his birth was miraculous. When Mary had Jesus, we say that she was uh, ever virgin, which means she was a virgin before, during, and after. So her his miraculous birth uh, and 
birth pangs were a direct consequence of sin. And Mary, she was rescued from sin. She, as the new Eve, because of the merits of Christ, what Christ is by nature, she is by grace, just like all of us. But she, in a unique sense, became uh, the first Christian, the very first one uh, that participated in the life of the Trinity and in the life in the life of her son, Jesus, who uh, for the redemption of the world. And she, the birth that she gave to Jesus was also miraculous, that the, it pointed to his miraculous resurrection because the tomb wasn't open for him. He walked out of a closed tomb. And, and uh, in the Jewish context, they referred to the tomb as the womb. And so in his birth, he walked out of the womb just like he walked out of the tomb in his resurrection. So already from his incarnation and birth, we are pointing, he's pointing already to the Paschal mystery itself. Um, and then the very life of Christ, when he, uh, when he was a child, he became obedient to his earthly mother and father. And so God himself grew as a human being, right? Taking on our nature. And then when he was 30 years old, he entered into his ministry after revealing his glory at the wedding of Cana. And previously before that, really, uh, in his baptism, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him and the uh, then the father spoke that this is my beloved son in whom he is well pleased, right? So in the incarnation, just to back up again, we already see the Trinity at work, right? The fa- Mary is the handmaid of the father. She becomes the mother of the son and she's the spouse of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, his, uh, he was born of the Holy Spirit, taking on flesh from the, vir- from the virgin's womb. So we already see the life of the Trinity. And then in his uh, baptism, we see the Trinity again. And in his whole life, uh, his ministry, he was in the power of the Holy Spirit, the divine person taking that took on human flesh, so fully God, fully man, completely united, not two different persons, but one nature, but he has two different wills. And so he has a human intellect, he has a divine intellect, and his divine intellect uh, moves through his, his human intellect, his human will. So his human heart was moved by the divine heart, right? <clears throat> So he very took on our flesh. And when he lived that life, he was revealing. And when he was moving about, you know, through Israel and Samaria and uh, the, the Decapolis and all these places and all throughout Israel, bringing, revealing himself to be the Jewish Messiah, to be, to be the light to all the nations, to bring the human race into the family of God and the church that he established and into the new covenant of God in the Eucharist. He, uh, he was revealing the heart of the Father he was revealing the Father the whole time, and he was doing this through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so um, what he is by nature, we become by grace. And so his entire life, his ministry life, each word that he's spoken, each miracle that he performed revealed the very life and the heart of God that would eventually culminate towards the full revelation of Christ crucified. And and it's showing what God has been doing for all eternity, taking on human flesh. That's an outpouring of God's love for God's children to show uh, his very nature so that by grace that we are moved um, by the Holy Spirit, the love of the Holy Spirit being poured out into our hearts that we would part- be, be partakers of the divine nature as Second Peter says so that we would participate in the very life of the Blessed Trinity which is self-giving love in the family of God, right? And so every before his uh, that Paschal mystery, that full revelation of Christ crucified, every word spoken and miracle performed, uh, it was revealing what ultimately was going to happen. It was showing that 
uh, by his stripes you are healed in his crucifixion and in his uh, resurrection, um, that he is truly God and has full dominion. His Our God reigns. That is the gospel. Our God reigns. He is the true king. He is the true Lord. He reigns over sin and death and brings new life and truth in, in the way to the Father. But that full revelation was actually when he wasn't speaking at all or wasn't performing a miracle, but was actually him crucified. That's what his highest teaching moment was. That's where all virtues were met. And suffering became that great pearl that our salvation was won. That through death became life and through suffering came true detachment and true uh, love and uh, of God, right? So that's what we're called to participate in. So now that was talking about his incarnation of life and how already... Through his incarnation in life, we're talking, he's already revealing the Paschal mystery. He's already foreshadowing the Paschal mystery in the very, uh, his very birth and life, right? So his incarnation in the life that he lived here on earth. So now we get to the actual passion. So Christ's passion happens and he enters into it fully on Holy Thursday, where he institutes the Eucharist and that in the upper room, he was celebrating the Passover, right? So it's the fulfillment of the Passover meal. He becomes, he is the Lamb of God that was at the Passover meal to be slain, to be eaten. He is the bread of life, not the manna that came down through uh, from the Father through Moses, but the true bread from heaven to give his flesh for the life of the world so that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood would have life and he would raise us on the last day because of the Eucharist. And he shows in there that the the, that that was the very first that was the beginning of his sacrifice where he says this is my body he's speaking as the bridegroom this is my body given up for you he's speaking fully of the covenant right this is the only time he uses the word covenant this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins do this in memory of me that word do this is is poeo which means offering which is a priestly function he tells his, his apostles to offer this so it's a sacrifice and he tell, tells them to do this in remembrance that reward for remembrance of me is anamnesis which means to bring present just like in the old testament they spoke in first person talking about the passover meal and they still do that today uh, on the passover meal once a year that they would go to jerusalem offer sacrifice in the temple they don't do that part now, but then the head of the family would participate in the Passover and speak in first person because they would directly participate in the exodus of Moses freeing the Israelites from captivity from Egypt and into the and into the uh, into that exodus into the to go ultimately to the promised land. But in that between time, they're fed with manna from heaven. They're given the lamb. They're given the, the, the covenant of um, sacrifice. They're given the tabernacle, the temple, the Ten Commandments, and um, and yeah, the, the everything that Jesus fulfills, he does it here in the Last Supper and on Holy Thursday. So this is when his, his passion begins. And then he's betrayed after the Eucharist um, instituting the Eucharist, he's betrayed by one of the 12 apostles and then they all scatter. And then, um, he is ultimately scourged. He is, goes to the cross and he dies on a cross through Roman crucifixion, um, offered from, uh, you know, they wanted to go to the Romans because they were the ones that could actually, uh, you know, crucify somebody. So the Jewish people took, uh, this man who's claiming to be God and to crucify him. So he dies. And this is such a beautiful part that people, that we also sometimes forget. He descends into hell. 
he descends. When we say hell, we don't mean Gehenna where the sufferings are like hell is that we think of. But when we say we descend into hell, we mean, we mean Hades, the abode of the dead where every single person before that was, was waiting was waiting for the Messiah to come. Jesus opened heavens for us. So then he goes down and rescues Adam, Eve, and all these people of the old covenant who are righteous. And so he raises them up. He descends into hell. So he uses, he used, his divinity was attached again still to his human soul. And he used the human body and the human soul that he has as the channel, the vessel, the vehicle to the underworld to raise the righteous waiting for the Savior to bring them to glory with him. Isn't that incredible? And that's, that's what we uh, celebrate on Holy Saturday. Then comes Resurrection Sunday. He, again, it's that miraculous resurrection. He leaves the tomb, the tomb empty, right? And it was a new tomb, it said. It was a, new, it was a tomb in a garden. And so what, is this, what does this show? It shows that um, it's the new garden. He renewed what was done he undid what was done in the Garden of Eden through sin and through sin and ultimately which entered in death and suffering and all these things. But through the suffering, Christ is in this new tomb in the garden and he renews it, right? And so he defeats death, hell, and Satan himself through the resurrection. And then after the resurrection, he spends 40 days between uh, that and his ascension. So this 40 days, if we remember, 40 days is very significant. What did Jesus do when he, after he was baptized and before he began his ministry, he was driven out to the desert and he fasted for 40 days. 40 days in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, what Christ did is a preparation for mission. So in these 40 days, he's preparing his apostles for mission. And he's, he's with his apostles that is going to be the foundation of the church, like Ephesians 2.20 says, that they're going to preach um, what they have become witnesses to. The apostles were witnesses to his resurrection. And then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. So this is the second time he is risen, right? So his human nature is united in glory to the divine nature. And he, in the human nature of Christ, enters into the heavenly realm, which has never happened before. God does not change. He's never even, he's never changed. But human nature has been changed, right? So, uh, humanity was lifted up to participate in the divinity that God has which is that self-giving love. So Christ and his ascension, when he is seated at the right hand of God, it means that he is made a king, right? So his kingdom is established now. So he blesses them and he goes up into heaven, he ascends and he enters the temple, like Hebrews says, not made by human hands. He enters once and for all in the presence of God. So now in the ascension, our human nature, he offers that sacrifice continually. So, uh, and um, we see all this Paschal mystery up until, uh, you know, the death, resurrection, and the ascension beautifully all in Revelation because Jesus, it's, it talks about the throne of God, which is talking about God the Father, and the throne of the Lamb, which is talking about Jesus. And, and throughout there, over 20 times, Jesus referred to looking as, uh, at a lamb as if slain, right? So from all eternity, God is in the eternal present now, right? So he's, he sees everything before him, but he's present now. So through all eternity, Jesus is offering self, himself from that sacrifice that he offered on the cross in eternity, but his, his body is glorified. He no longer uh, is, has death or suffering, anything like that, right? He's, it's, he's perfected. The human nature is attached to the divine nature, but his wounds are still there and he, his, uh, it shows as if the lamb is if slain. And then it shows from the temple of God the Father and the temple of 
uh, or the sanctuary of the Lamb of God, then they, this flowed of the living of that living water, which is the Holy Spirit. So he enters into that temple not made by human hands and enters once for all in the presence of God. So now from his the the ascension. He, he seems like people would be far away, right? So the angel, like when he ascends into heaven, he appear, the angel appears to the, the apostles and says, what are you guys looking at? Didn't he just tell you to go and wait for him here and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit so you're clothed with power from on high in that upper room again, right, right where the uh, new covenant happened in the Eucharist, right? The presence of God is gonna be uh, you know, in that upper room through the Holy Spirit and the Eucharist, these gifts of God that he has given. So go there. But from this ascension, it's so beautiful because he hasn't left us. Like he didn't just leave to go up to the sky and leave us. No, because actually he's so attached now that he is both God and he's in the poor. Just like he says in Matthew 25, whatever you did for the least of my brothers, you did for, you did for me. So now he's saying like he's glorified and yet, and he reigns over death and yet he's in his body, the church. He's in the in the light. He's, every single human person is made in his image to be served so we can serve Christ in every single human being. And that's why he can say to Saul in Acts 9, when Acts, or uh, when Paul is uh, going to, you know, take all these Christians to imprison them, to murder them. He just killed Stephen. And yet Jesus reveals himself and says, Saul, Saul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus identifies that he lives in his followers, but yet he's glorified. So it's a both and, right? So he's glorified in the ascension and in the ascension, he's also becoming uh, uh, to live in through through us as the church and us as, as Christians and the power of the Holy Spirit. So he lives in us and we get to serve him in other people. And yet he's, and also from that place, that right hand of God, he also distributes the sacraments his ministry continues. It's him through through the priest. It's him through the Christian. It's him through a believer that Christ is risen and he is risen in the resurrection and he is risen in the ascension, that human nature uh, now glorified in the divine Godhead, right? So uh, then nine days later after the ascension, and this is so beautiful, it's the apostles and the mother of God in the upper room and the Holy Spirit creates unity, but also it's attracted to unity. So they prayed with the, for the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were afraid. And nine days later, on the Feast of Pentecost, the very first fruits, that was a, uh, another feast of the Jewish calendar, Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes, and it is the first fruits. Jesus is the firstborn among the new creation, right? So like, the first one to rise from the dead. And uh, in that Pentecost, we can taste heaven here on earth. We Jesus now walks the earth through us and we become partakers in the divine nature. Christ lives not only in heaven, but lives in and through us. And so, and, and what, and he lives through the church, right? So Ephesians one twenty one, St. Paul says that the church is the extension of Christ into this world. But when he says that the, that the church is the, the fullness of Christ who fills all and is in all things, right? So now that Christ's humanity is in glory with the divine nature, like I said before, now the divine nature is poured out on all human flesh. 
Um, remember in Acts uh, 2, when it is the fulfillment of Joel, according to Peter, we're, re- we're reborn in the Spirit, that the Savior would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this is given through the sacraments, right? He says, nobody can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they're born of the water and Spirit to be reborn again. And what, the, what was that? Baptism, the water and the Spirit. But also uh, through the sacrament of confirmation, which was... Um, you know, the laying on of hands and the receiving of the Holy Spirit to re- to enkindle the gifts of the Spirit that they're given at baptism to become alive, to participate in Pentecost. And I'm starting to get ahead of myself talking about the sacraments, which we'll get to in a little bit. But just to say, you know, all these things are, we partake in the divine nature through the sacraments and through healing and all these things. It's the Paschal mystery uh, we get to participate in. So, and when we think of the Pentecost where they are filled with the Holy Spirit. The disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, it says the apostles and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and there was 120. Well, in the Jewish context, 120 meant it was like you're starting your own city, your own nation, right? So it was the name of 120 people. So who knows if it was actually 120 people present, but what Luke was trying to communicate, regardless if it was a real 120 people in the upper room, or if it was just saying, now we're starting a new kingdom, a new city. The heavenly Jerusalem is the Catholic Church, the founded upon, from uh, founded from Jesus to on the apostles. Right. So, this is so beautiful. The Catholic Church is already represented in the one room of Pente- of uh, that upper room in Pentecost because they all spoke in different tongues and other languages, and they everybody could hear them in their own native languages. Well, what is the Catholic Church? Is the body of Christ? We're spread throughout the entire world. We were commissioned. We are commissioned in Matthew twenty-eight to go and make disciples of all nations. And in Revelation, we see that every single saint was. We, they saw um, a number that they couldn't even count of every tongue, every nation, every tribe. That the whole human race participated in this new covenant of the family of God, right? So the body of Christ is one in Christ Jesus through the bread, the Eucharist in that upper room, and the one spirit, the Holy Spirit in the upper room. So the bride of Christ is receiving the bridegroom and all these things. So uh, it's the Catholic church already in that upper room. So every single time when, you know, so like the Catholic church is Catholic. It's the Catholic it's the according to the whole. It's universal. And so the Catholic Church literally is on every continent. It has been preached the gospel for 2,000 years everywhere. If you've heard the gospel, it's because uh, the Catholic Church. <laughs> Praise you, Jesus. So again, it's another participation. Every single time we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the Eucharist, it's that participation, what was already at place with Jesus and the apostles in the upper room, both on Holy Thursday with the Eucharist and on Pentecost, on uh, on Pentecost, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. It's the two things that unite us as Christians and fill, and fill us with new life, right? So we see this unity and human dignity being longed for by our country right now from injustices and in Christ. Things that are contrary to the sacredness of all human life, abortion, racism, etc. It doesn't make sense and it's not the body of Christ because in the body of Christ, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And when one suffers, we all suffer, right? So St. Paul talks about this. The hand can't say to the say to the foot, I have no need of you. We're all one. We suffer together. We are honored together. So the world is longing for what the Catholic Church has been, been 
realistically and in its teaching and preaching for 2,000 years, that every single life is valuable, to become partakers of the divine nature, to know that your life has value, value, it's meaningful, it's sacred, and it has eternal dignity and is perfectly loved and is called to participate in love and life itself in Jesus Christ. And so we see right from the very get-go of the unity of the Eucharist and the uh, the receiving of the Holy Spirit in that upper room that every single tongue, nation, tribe is represented and that continues to be realized throughout the world to bring them back to that upper room with us. So the Holy Spirit creates unity and the Holy Spirit is attracted to unity, as we said. And just to touch on it a little bit more, on what's going on in our country, racism and violence and how the Paschal Mystery... It, in Psalm 85, it prophesied that the Messiah, where justice and peace shall kiss. So we talk about no justice, no peace. We talk about how there's no peace in the world, no justice. What is the answer? Jesus Christ. Conversion to Jesus Christ and his body, his bride, the Catholic Church. Justice and peace shall kiss. Racism and violence in our country would come to an end. All injustice would come to an end when every single person sees every single other person as a member of the human family as the body of Christ and to serve them as truly that they are uh, made in the image and likeness of God, to serve Jesus through every single person, to bring them into the family of God and the Catholic Church and to truly love people. It's love that unites and it's the sacraments of love that unite us in the sacraments in the life of the church, but also to give us love so that we can love people as we go. So we become, we're, we receive the sacraments to become sacraments to the world in a sense. So the whole Paschal mystery, again, is the death, descent into hell, resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost the receiving of the Holy Spirit. That is the Paschal mystery. It's the culmination of God's revelation and love to mankind. It was God's search to man. So every single person who talks about, well, I'm spiritual and I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to play with these things, like, you know, figure out my way to God or my spirituality. Here's the good news. Jesus, God himself has already came and revealed himself to you. You don't have to go searching for him. He came searching for you. And all of these events are historical one-time events. Jesus, truly the son, son of God from all eternity, took on human flesh in the incarnation, lived a life for 33 years, had a ministry for 30, for three years at the age of 30 to age 33 to reveal the father's heart and ultimately reveal it fully being outpoured and pierced with a sword where blood and water would, would, would come out and reveal the sacraments of baptism, the Eucharist, where it all flows as the bridegroom of Jesus is now forming his bride, the church, just as the new Adam and the old Adam, he, there was the Eve created was, was created from the rib, the side of Adam when he was in a deep sleep. Well, Jesus is now in a deep sleep on the cross and he forms the church from the cross. And we participate that, participate in that in the life of the church and the liturgy. So that whole Paschal mystery of Jesus's um, res- his, uh, crucifixion, his passion is his crucifixion, his death, his descent into hell, his resurrection, his ascent into, he- into heaven and, the- and Pentecost. Those are actual historical events that happened one time only, but they are made present to each person in the liturgy, the sacraments, and most particularly in the Eucharist, Right. And so we celebrate and we have feast days every single year. We keep with the calendar of, 
of these things because Jesus has entered into human history. So human history uh, is forever marked by Christ's one-time events. So we participate and we celebrate maybe and highlight certain aspects of the life of Christ and the, the Paschal mystery. But every single time you come to Mass, every single time we go to the sacraments, every single time that there's a healing that takes place through the prayer of another Christian, Jesus performing miracles, what are they actually encountering though? They're encountering the crucified Christ, the risen Christ, both resurrected and uh, ascended. And they're encountering the Holy Spirit that was given to mankind at Pentecost. So again, it's going back to the Paschal mystery. It's revealing Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ ascended, and, and and Pentecost. So the sacraments... And like I said, the most particularly the the Eucharist, because it is the source and the summit of the Christian life, because it's the source, because it's Christ himself, and he is the way, and it's the summit, as Christ is the fulfillment of each Christian. He is the truth and the life, and he is the new and eternal covenant in Christ's blood that we participate in, right? So this is why the Eucharist, when he ta- when St. Paul talks about it, it's a participation, it's a communion in the blood of Christ. And he who eats or drinks without discerning the body, the body of Christ, which either through mortal sin or just a lack of appreciation, you actually become what he says is blood guilty. Now, this is something that was very, very serious. So to say that in 1 Corinthians is mind-blowing because if it was just a symbol, well, me uh, you know, shooting at a poster of somebody doesn't make me guilty of that, of that person. But if I actually shot that person, then it'd make me blood guilty of that person. So it is not a symbol. It's actually Christ himself when we become guilty or we can have life, right? Um, as, like what Jesus said. And so the Eucharist is in in the like par excellence the uh, the Paschal mystery the the Mass right but it's also in baptism right and this is why <clears throat> and this is why uh, Saint Paul in Romans talks about how we have been we we are buried with Christ and we rise with Christ so he's going back again to the Paschal mystery yet he's writing you know 30, 40 years later from the Paschal mysteries but it's a participation in the Paschal mystery when we go and uh, and when we um, confess our sins we're encountering the risen Christ he's when he told them told his apostles to forgive and to retain sins and instituting the other aspect of the priesthood of forgiving sins and confession was part, it was right after the resurrection. So we encounter again the risen Christ. When we receive the Holy Spirit and uh, the, the gifts of the Spirit are enkindled in us in that, uh, in the sacrament of confirmation, just like through all, so we, we see throughout Acts that, that through the laying on of hands, people would receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit that they were already given at, at baptism, but enkindled. They're again participating in the Paschal mystery. They become another Christ. <laughs> and and then and the very healing aspects of the anointing of the sick and in the ministry sacraments of 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 uh, marriage and through the priesthood, it, they become actual graces and and St. Paul in Ephesians 5 connects uh, the married life as Christ crucified, the husband dying for his bride, the church, to resemble Christ. And a priest is not his own. And that's why uh, St. Paul would say that he wishes all people would be like him and he has been crucified with Christ and that he he has been crucified to the world with Christ and that he participates and that all of us participate in the sufferings of Christ. Well, Christ is no longer suffering, right? But because he's, he's ascended and glorified into heaven. But again, we are encountering Christ in the sacraments uh, of the Paschal mystery. So we do encounter all of it. 
So the Paschal mystery is huge because that is what we are, that is what uh, we encounter every single time we go to receive the sacraments. When we hear the teaching, the teachings of the church, the life of the church, the worship, commission of evangelization and teaching, the service of the poor of the world through the church, the charisms, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, who do they encounter? Who do we encounter? Christ crucified, risen, and glorified. Who is it that we preach about? Just as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we preach Christ and him crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Greeks who sought, who seeked wisdom and God dying on a cross doesn't make sense to them. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews because they didn't expect that to happen, that a God, a Messiah would come and reveal his kingdom this way to fulfill all the covenants this way. But he did. So uh, it, we preach Christ crucified, going back again to the Paschal Mysteries. When we look at sacred scripture, uh, typically what you can really break down what the New Testament letters outside of the Gospels are talking about. They're letters to certain churches or letters to certain people on how to act properly so they speak strongly against anything that is immoral and say they'll cut you off, cut you off from Christ and to continue and persevering in this life of Christ, that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. And he says that because he's referring again to the ascension. If Jesus is there and we're there, we're participating in, again, in the Paschal mystery. But also, uh, they what they worry about, again, is like false teachings, false prophets. Um, and then they when St. Paul or anybody else is actually talking about the life of Christ, what are they actually doing? What are they meditating on throughout? Like when every single time you hear about like the life of Christ and they talk about uh, the revelation of God or the wisdom of God, what do they talk about? They talk about Christ crucified, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, descent to the Holy Spirit, the Paschal mystery. So it is again, the sacraments and the life of the church and the life of a Christian. Uh, it's Christ, his Paschal mystery living on through his church and through all of us. And I can straight up say, I probably should have a whole other podcast just about this, but the um, sacraments have marked my life. (laughs) It is participating in the life of Christ. It is knowing the love of God and the blessed Trinity through Jesus's passion, Holy Thursday, his crucifixion and death, his descent into hell, his resurrection, his ascent into heaven with our human nature and the descent of the Holy Spirit. Oh man, like we get to touch that every single time we go to the sacrament. It's a guaranteed encounter with with that Christ. <laughs> and my life has been marked by that. My life, the grace that was given to me in baptism when I was a baby, brought me back to the church, gave me a hunger, knew that there was something that I was missing. And then when I came into the church, uh, from receiving First Communion and Confirmation, that whole summer, totally rocked my world in 2017 because of the grace of confirmation that I received the Holy Spirit, whether I felt it then or not. Um, I, my life was radically changed and it does not make sense. Things like started feeling wrong to me, things that were of God, like this is right, that I need to keep going on this. And I was hungry for more of God. In the Eucharist, every single time, I, I try to go to Mass every single day, and really, really missed the Eucharist after, uh, um, you know, during the quarantine and everything. And that's a way that we abide with Christ, right? So in the Gospel of John, he talks about in, in John 6, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And those other times where he uses the word abide, he talks about remaining in my word to prove that he, we're his disciples, to abide in the Holy Spirit, to uh, to be 
you know, those people, the, the disciples to prove that we are his disciples by the way that we love each other to bear abundant fruit. So it's the words, the Eucharist, it's the Holy Spirit, it's the deciding to love people and to bear fruit from that love that he bears fruit from, that we are the, we are the branches on the vine of, of Jesus. And it's the Eucharist that continues to strengthen me, feed me, and be my everything, my all in all. It's the intimacy with Jesus. And it's abiding in his presence to become more and more transformed. To live the life of Christ is to live a life devoted to the Eucharist and to truly understand what it means to be a radical, on-fire Christian is to be devoted to the Eucharist. There's only two times that people leave Jesus in the New Testament. And obviously it's when he's abandoned at the cross, when he there's suffering, but he's just been telling him the whole time during his ministry that there's going to be suffering. To be a follower of me, there's going to be persecution. You're going to be hated. You're going to be slandered at. You're going to be thrown and persecuted. You're going to be uh, beaten and all of these things. And yet they leave because we don't know how to take suffering, but suffering has been a great pearl. That's why St. Paul, all throughout his letters and throughout all the other New Testament uh, letters as well, they talk about rejoicing and suffering. They were, they were rejoicing to be honored to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ, right, in Acts. Um, and same thing, the, the one other time that people leave Jesus in the New Testament is on the teaching of the Eucharist. It's the Eucharist that feeds us. After uh, missing, uh, not being able to go to Mass because of the COVID quarantine, um, it, one, it like fed my hunger, but also when I got to come back to Mass, all of a sudden there was this new freedom. There was this fire into my heart and life and freedom and evangelization. I felt like stale and almost like stagnant, but as soon as I received the Eucharist, I received Jesus himself who, who died for me, loved me, gave himself for me, has risen and glorified in the Paschal Mystery, and all of a sudden, that new life is in me. I know like there was a freedom in evangelization. I wanted to go bring people into the Paschal mystery of Christ. And that other sacrament that we get to participate in that Paschal mystery is the confession that I try to frequent uh, fairly often is the, is that great sacrament of confession. So I can hear just as the people who heard on earth uh, that your sins are forgiven from Christ. I, we get to hear that from Christ through the priest. Right. And so the, Christian life is an incarnated Christianity. A life without the church, without the Eucharist, without the sacraments really doesn't make any sense because then it just becomes another spiritual thing. Just like the world says, like there's spiritual things, it's either this or that. But no, the Christian revelation is that God is pouring himself out to humanity to reveal himself, to bring people in, to find people, to redeem people, to rescue people, to come to them and not bring. So God is actually coming down to man to bring them up as opposed to God trying to bring him up by by himself. And it's God who continues this through the sacraments and through uh, the ministry of evangelization and serving the poor and all of these things of the, the life of the church. It is participating in that continued incarnation, the Paschal mystery of Christ in the Eucharist and the sacraments in the life of the church and the life of a disciple. And another sacrament that has marked my life, which like we said before, every single sacrament marks the life of every single Christian. Uh, it's just a, it's this unremovable mark on their soul. But um, another mark that I received that has completely transformed my life is the sacrament of marriage. And to be honest, this is probably one of the sacraments where I actually felt like <laughs> like something was was 
it was a deep, deep encounter to become one flesh with my incredible, beautiful wife, Napoli. And the Holy Spirit was just so present the entire night. I could feel the angels and saints and Mama Mary and the Holy Spirit. And uh, one of my aunts even said that, you know, she felt the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit and our Blessed Mother at the ceremony. And, um, and the graces given to us at that sacrament was to reflect that very grace of Jesus in the mystery of the church, the very beautiful mystery of Christ in the church being one body, one flesh, one union. And that's why the sacrament of marriage is a sacrament lifted up to divine grace because it's the participation in the, the very love of God of in Christ Jesus crucified on the cross for his bride, the church, as Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 talks about St. Paul, that uh, talking about the man and wife becoming one and, and the husband loving his wife to the point of death, just as Christ Jesus died for his bride, the church. And, and he talks about it, the great mystery he's speaking of is Christ in the church. The great mystery is mysterion in Greek and that in Latin it got carried over to sacramentum, which we get sacrament from. The marriage of the sacrament of marriage is this incredible infusion of grace for service in the church. And that's why you're married in the church is because it's one, it's being witnessed from God through his church to, to become one flesh, but it's also a binding together so that within the church, our, our ministry flows for the church and from the church um, to the whole world. Our entire life would be, our marriage would reflect the very love of God to shed, uh, to shine God's light everywhere, to be light to the earth and salt to the earth and within our marriage context to show that love of God. And the graces from that are just absolutely incredible. <laughs> and uh, and to continue walking more and more every single day in that, in that light of Jesus of um, truly authentically loving, um, and the graces that are there tapping into the graces that were given to us in marriage is just absolutely incredible and transformative. And without these things, like I said, it just becomes another spirituality, but also comes a form of Gnosticism, which was a early Christian heresy that is basically you're saved through some form of knowledge. Like you just, you just have this like thought process or something, and that's what makes you saved. No, it's an actual life relation, life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus didn't want to uh, to leave us to some form of spirituality or Gnosticism. The Christian life, the Christian message is radically different. We, the same Christ who lived who lived here on earth and has now ascended into heaven, we actually get to encounter him bodily in the Eucharist. We get to hear him speak through uh, in confession and all the sacraments and uh, continue watching his healing presence in all the sacraments and in the life of a disciple. Praise you, Jesus. So, whoo-wee, dang, this has actually been a long podcast, much longer than I thought, but man, isn't this just like, this stuff is just absolutely life-changing. It is life-changing, and I pray that every single person encounters that Paschal mystery of Christ to come fully into his body in the Catholic Church, to receive the sacraments, to encounter his great love in the Eucharist and confession and, and all of these great gifts that God has given to humanity so that we can truly become the participants in the divine nature, the life-giving self of the Trinity and the love, the self-giving love of the Trinity. And that is the Paschal mystery revealed in Jesus Christ. And that is the Paschal mystery continuing to reveal itself and to live out its life here on earth until the new heavens and the new earth come with Jesus' glorious return as King and true Lord of heaven and earth.